This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, honey. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Drive. What does it mean to you? I know you guys. I know that you like spooky stuff, so you probably know about the Manson murders. Now listen, anytime we're talking about murders, I like to be compassionate about the victims. It's a horrible, horrible tragedy that happened in 1969 on Cielo Drive. But it's also uh, one of the, the most sensationalized, juicy Hollywood. It's the ultimate Hollywood tale, really. Because when we talk about the Manson family, we're talking drugs, we're talking sex, we're talking the 60s, we're talking cult mentality. And then we're talking about famous people. We're talking about the iconic Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, the hairstylist of the stars, Abigail Folger, the heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. These were very important people. And I'm not going to get too into the murder because I'm sure you already know about it. But if not, go Google it. 
you know, they should make a movie about it. Oh, wait a minute. They have made about 10,000 billion movies about it every single year since it happened. In fact, this is actually the 50th anniversary in 2019. And because of that, there are three movies coming out this year. There is The Haunting of Sharon Tate, which stars uh, Hilary Duff. There's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I don't think is necessarily about the murder, but I think that it's sort of tied into it. That's a Quentin Tarantino film. And Margot Robbie is playing Sharon Tate. And then there's just a movie called Tate that is uh, Kate Bosworth. So I've been fascinated by the Manson murders for a very long time. And I heard that there is a man named David Omen, that lives just a couple doors down from the house where the whole incident happened in 1969. It's a very small private drive, and I do not encourage you to go up there. Just don't do it. You're not going to see anything from the murderer's house. You're not going to see that stuff. And it's a private drive. Nice people live on the street that don't want to be bothered. But I did hear that there's a man that lives there. And he's been on all the ghost shows because there's all kinds of activity. Now, I don't want to just talk about the Manson murder victims because this man lives in what has been called a ghost flop house. It's been called Disneyland for the dead. It just seems to be sort of a, a place where ghosts like to come and go. It's just like, hey, let's check out David Omen's house before we make our way to the other side. And it seems like there's just a a rotating roster of spirits, but apparently the ghosts of some of the Manson murder victims. Now, this man, David Omen, and his house have been featured on Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, My Ghost Story, Paranormal Witness, all the TV shows. So I said, you know what? We got to We got to talk to David Omen. So we had him in here. And he is a character. This man can tell a story. He can talk your ear off. But he is nothing but good vibes. Now, this man is from Los Angeles. He is an eccentric character. I, you know, I feel like I've really bonded with him. And he has been around for for a while. He's seen how L.A. has changed. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in this interview. And don't you worry because my producer Land and I went to the world famous David Omen house and I'm going to tell you that story later. But first, I want you to meet David Omen. David Omen, <laughs> we you've already been here and you've told me so many good things. God, in 15 minutes I did spill my guts, didn't I? Uh, but I know that there's just so much more cuz how many years are we talking? 14 years? 17. It'll be... I moved in in 2002, so it's 17 years come this August. Okay. We got to go to the beginning. (laughs) So you obviously knew about the Manson murders. Yeah. Now, what... When this plot of land was up for sale, what was like? What was there? Was it just land, or was there a house originally? Or when we bought the lot, the story goes this way: November, late November, on a Sunday morning, nineteen ninety-eight. My dad calls me up and says, "David," I said, "Yeah, Dad, what?" And he goes, "Get up." I said, "Dad, it's eight in the morning on a Sunday morning. What the? Get up, get up, get up! I want you to meet me. I just found a lot." And it's like, "Okay, Dad, great, Dad, what?" He goes, it's $40,000. It's a foreclosure up in Beverly Hills. I'm going, Dad, stop right there. 
I, you got my attention. $40,000? He goes, I read it in the Sunday paper in the, cal- in the uh, classified section. And I'm like, Dad, it's got to be a misprint. I'm sure they dropped a zero and it's probably 400000 And he goes, well, I think it's 40000 It's a foreclosure. Go meet me. And I'm like, okay, give me about 20 minutes, pops, at least. I'll, I'll, what's the, and he says, Cielo Drive. And I go, Cielo Drive. And at the time, it didn't register. It wasn't like... Ding, 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 ding. I was like, God, it sounds so familiar, Pops. All right, fine. So I get out the uh, the Thomas guide, the street guide, and I go, look where it is. And it's like, oh, it's not too far. So I drive up there. And as soon as I drove, got to park the car, I looked down at the end of the drive and I said, oh, my God. Cielo. I said, that's where the Sharon Tate murders took place. <laughs> And what's interesting is, is I had been here during my high school years. We all had read the book Helter Skelter, and we all wanted to go investigate and see the location. So we drove up there in, I guess, 1978, 79, and then the house was still there. And it was strange because there was this chain-link fence that was outside, was outside the driveway and the entrance, and that's as far as you could go. And you couldn't see the house. All you could see was the driveway and then the rock outcropping where they had part of a wall that was no longer there. And that was it. And we'd all sit there and my friends would start drinking. And I walked right up to the gate and felt compelled to say, you know something? We're on we're on hollowed ground. I don't know how you can otherwise feel or think about it, but it's it was the site of one of the most tragic episodes in Los Angeles history at the time. Um, five people were killed. One of them was eight and a half months pregnant. And I'm sitting there. I bowed my head down and I said, look, I got to say a prayer for those who died here and pay my respects. It felt like that kind of an emotional connection saying, you know uh-huh. something? I can't take a sip of a beer until I at least pay res- my respects to those who had died on this land years earlier. And at that time, it was nine, ten years earlier. So it was really close to the murders. And my friend said, oh, don't, just give it a rest. Let's not do this. And I said, no, no, I'm going to – I have to. I'm sorry. So after that, those few times that I was taken up there, I could never find that stupid little tiny street. And I mean when I was 20, 25, I drive up Cielo. Mind you, there was only three private drives going up Cielo. I could never figure out which one it was and I was scared to drive up it. So I said, fine. So on this day, literally – 30 years later, in 1998, I'm like, I said, I can't believe I'm here. I'm here. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. And lo and behold, my dad drives up in his RX-7. And my dad was a, was a pisser. My dad was, uh, at the time, believe it or not, he was 85 years old. Um, and my dad was young at heart and had a re- really great, young, youthful spirit. And he, I said, Dad. Dad, I said, that's where the Sharon Tate murders took place. And I'm pointing at the end of the drive. And he looks at me and he goes, I don't give a damn. We're here to look at this lot. Oh, my God. It was $40,000. Like, that's all he heard. That's all, that's all he cares about because I don't give a shit about history and the past. I'm looking at this property and so should you be focusing on that. And I'm like, okay, so much for 30 years earlier, Pops. So we're looking at it and he says, you know, if this is really $40,000, we can build a house here. And I said, well, dad, this is your favorite thing. He built houses as his um, profession. And he- as It's he, a gorgeous house, P.S. Well, thank you. You'll have, uh, Roz, you two will have to come up and check it out in person. Period. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he said, um, he goes, I love this. I said, why? He goes, because it's cheap. And I loved, as he used to say, it, I loved um, problematic 
lots. And I said, why, why do you like well, that? He goes, little did he know. No, he, well, he didn't mean it. He meant, <laughs> he meant construction-wise. He goes, I like hillside sloping lots and uphill lots. He goes, Any can, anyone can design and build a house on a flat piece of land. It's the creative minds that have to go to work to build a house on a hill slope, down slope or an upslope. And I said, holy shit. And I started to think about all the times that I've been with him through the years as a kid on construction sites and even the house, the duplex he built in Los Feliz, which has another connection to the Manson murders, let me tell you. What? Is, is an upslope. Yeah. My dad built a house in 1953 with my mom or a duplex on a little street called, uh, was it off Los Feliz? It was Robel Vista Drive. Now, Robel Vista Drive just happens to be the same street that Charlie and the kids went to on the night of the LaBianca murders. Remember when the story goes, he drove down a private, a small little street to the end of the cul-de-sac and they were going to kill the people in the house at the end of the, end of the street at the cul-de-sac. And as the story goes, Charles drove up to the house and they got out and they went up to the, the gate and all of a sudden they were cost, assaulted by two guard dogs behind the gate. That property that they were going to commit the murders at that they decided not to was literally 150 feet down the the street from where my parents, about 150, 200 feet down the street from where my parents' duplex was. And yes, oh they still God. very much owned that property in 1969. Wow. They were renting it out till they actually owned it till 1992. So, well, not yeah. to give away where I live, yes. but I live very close to the La Bianca house. And I've been on your street. I have been I've been to the the now house, the the house now. It actually sits on the property. They tore the original house down in 1992-93. And a guy named Harvey Weintraub bought the property, tore it down. But he left two walls from the original house, bearing walls from the original house. And the floor from the kitchen is still there from the Tate house. To get away really? The, to get away with a remodel in California, if you build a house from scratch, you have to a- actually go for a new building permit. However, in California, there's a clause which says if you want to do under the pretense of a remodel, all you have to do from the original structure is keep one bearing wall, and you get to pay less in in fees, et cetera, et cetera. So what Harvey did was he left two bearing walls from the original house and the floor from the Tate kitchen, and I actually mm. was there. God, let's see. We finished the house in 2000. This is about 2002, 2003. Um, Harvey was trying to sell the lot. I mean, the house that he built there it was called Via Blanca, or yeah, Via Blanca, yeah, Via Blanca, and um, or Villa, Via Bella, Via Bella. Sorry, not Via Blanca. So he's trying to sell my father the house for like fifteen, twenty million dollars. And my dad says, "Well, I'm a realtor. I'll take a look." And goes walks through the house, and I go with him. And I remember when we went out, when we came to the back door. There's a spot on the floor that's about a three foot by three foot um, section of wood that looks like it's like a like a door. It's not. It's like a trap door. It's just. It's just a little bit different than the rest of the floor. And I said, it. "What's that?" He goes, "Oh, that's the uh, the crawl space to get access to the floor to get under the floor." It's like, oh. So he opens it up and he turns the light on, and three feet below, I see this linoleum floor. And I said, is that linoleum? He goes, oh, no, that's linoleum. He goes, that's the floor from the kitchen in the Tate house, of the Tate house. And wow. I'm like, 
holy sh-. He goes, I said, can I crawl down? He goes, yeah, go right ahead. So I lowered myself down the three feet and I put two, both of my hands, flat palms on the linoleum. And I'm just saying, God, I haven't felt linoleum in years, you know, in a, in a 60s linoleum, like in my parents' house. And I kept on feeling this weird, fine, like fine type of a vibration rub, rubbing, rumbling against my fingertips. And I'm like, one. all of a sudden it started out of nowhere. It's like, whoa. I feel this, this like little like vibrations on the floor, and it's. He, I, I said, I said that's weird. He goes, well, he goes, I just feel kind of this tingly sensation on the floor. And he goes, uh huh, and just didn't even acknowledge it. Just okay. Later on, I found out that he had had problems with the contract laborers during construction and a large turnover during construction really? and problems during construction. Oh, yeah. I asked him. I said, because well, I'd gone up there one day in the afternoon and there was no one there, but the gate was open. And I said, guys, I need to talk to the, to the head contractor. It's about 2 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and there's no one there. But there are trowels. And buckets of plaster and stucco. And I'm like, going, what the hell? And it looked like everything was just like dropped and left right where it was at the moment when something happened. They were drawn away from mm-hmm. their from their detail and they left. And I was like, hello, hello. And I went around the whole entire property and there was no one there. And I kept on looking around and seeing things that made it look like somebody had taken everybody from the job site at one moment and just said, let's go. We're done and left everything there. And it was like, and I've been raised in a family where my father was building houses all the time. So when I saw this, I said, two o'clock, it's past lunch hour. There's no one here. The gates are wide open. There's stuff that should be either applied to the surface or it's going to end up getting basically hardened inside these buckets. And there's going to be nothing you can do but throw the buckets away because it's going to become concrete. And I'm going, this is daft, just daft, daft, daft. I couldn't figure it out. I'm going, mm And the following day on Friday, I remember going down there to look for the guy again. Gates were wide open. No one was there. The whole place was dead empty. I was like, this is strange. And then come Saturday morning at about 8 in the morning, I was walking my dogs, and I saw some guy in a pickup truck, a worker, go down the driveway, close the gates, and put the lock on and just leave. And I'm <laughs> Such like, a movie scene. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is that, man? And it was strange. And I never asked Harvey about it, and I never asked him about the problems. I just kept on noticing things that – were apparent to me because I was walking my dogs down the driveway, so it's kind of hard for me not to see what's going on, to to notice when cars were coming up and down the driveway and the trucks. And usually there were workers, and it was just like, that's odd. Huh? Okay. Hmm. Interesting. But because, yeah, the current resident, he's been there for like a while. I would have ten. I think it's about 10. 10 years now. Well, that land, I mean, that house was real big. And I don't think that the original was any near that big, right? Original, so it must have been a lot of land. The original was a one story ranch style house. Yes. Large, sprawling, had a backyard, had a swimming pool, had another guest house behind it, which is where William Gerritsen was at the time of the murders. Um, yeah, it was pretty much just a huge, huge piece of land that it sat on. It, remember, had a huge driveway going in, then right. it had the walkway going to the front of the house, then the house was spread out longwise, it went back, and then and there was a swimming pool, and then there was the guest house behind it. And a bit so, of yeah, a yard. It was, and it was a huge yard. It had yeah. a very large front yard, and then it had a ba- big backyard, and again, it had a large 
paved area for cars, probably about 15 cars on the front, and then a two-car garage connected to the house. So let's go back to so you guys you you begin construction right. were you having that kind of experience was anybody Yeah I mean personally uh well literally a couple months after we bought the lot my cat had died and I told my friend I said look I know and now I've got a place I can bury him I'm not going to have him cremated I hate doing that and I said I've got this lot come up with me and let's go bury Arthur So my friend Sean came up with me and I basically came down from the street level down about six feet with him on the slope of the hill and we dug the three foot deep bear, you know, hole and we buried Arthur and it was weird. I said, Sean, I have this strange feeling. He goes, what's that, David? And I said, I have this strange feeling. I don't feel like it's just you and he, me here right now at this quote unquote funeral. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, I feel like we've got company. I said, I feel like we've got spirits, like there's a bunch of spirits of people around us honoring Arthur's burial here, and it's just not just you and I. And he goes, that's strange. He goes, I feel there's kind of some interesting sensations as well. He goes, I didn't want to tell you about it because I didn't want to make you feel uneasy, especially because it's so traumatic for you to be burying Arthur, your first cat. And I said, yeah. I said, but I, had to, I just felt like I had to get confirmation from you if this was really happening. He goes, oh, no, David, it's happening. It's definitely happening. And I said, okay. And he was sensitive. He's very sensitive, too. So that was the first time I said, you know, there's something weird about this. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't threatened. I never felt uneasy. I just felt comforted. And I said, Sean, I feel like we've got a bunch of pallbearers here with us. And he says, it's comforting. And I said, yeah. I said, I feel very comforted. I said, I don't feel threatened. I don't feel like this is taboo. We shouldn't be doing this. I felt supported. And he goes, well, that's good. And then fast forward a few months when we actually started working on the property and we had the first floor up, which was the floor lowest to the down the slope, I kept on walking around on the on the floor and saying, God, I feel like, like, I just don't know. It just felt weird. And all of a sudden, I felt like somebody came up behind me. I said, Jose. And I turned and go, yeah, Jose. There's no one there. And I said, I could have sworn I just felt like somebody was right up on top of my shoulder and was about to tap me and say, David, I need your help for something. I was like, no one was there. That was the first time I felt that. That continued. You said, no way, Jose. That, that. <laughs> <laughs> that continued for the next three and a half years during the construction of the house. It was just like um, not feeling alone and always feeling like there's somebody coming, there's somebody around there. And I was like, okay. but comforting, comforting, nothing threatening, nothing like I'm going to get you. See, because that's the image that I have of your house is that it's there's some spooky, dark stuff. And I think a lot of it is because of things that have been said on TV and all of that. So we should talk about that. But first, let's just let's keep going yeah. with the story. Sure, sure. So I assembled the five laborers that had been working for the past two years on the property. And I said, hey, guys, we're you know, next week's the last week you're going to be here. I said, we're going to get to the new people, you know, the finishing guys. Um, I have a question. Have any of you guys in the past two years had any weird experiences in the house during the construction? And one of my laborers, one of the laborers says, yeah. I said, what happened? He goes, well, he's telling me in Spanish. He says, six months ago, we're on the th- I'm on the third floor. It's about six o'clock. I'm the last one on the site. And um, I hear voices and footsteps coming from the top floor. And I'm like, Okay. He goes, yeah. So I run upstairs and I figured it's you and your father coming to see the, you know, coming to check up on what's going on. 
So I go upstairs and I look, and there's no one on the top floor. I then go outside onto the, figuring that, you know, you guys are outside in front of the house. I go out into the driveway and I look up and down the driveway and there's not a single car on the street. And I said to him, I said, yeah, I said, summer when it's you know, six o'clock. I said, I've been up here at six thirty, seven o'clock and people are starting to fi- finally arrive to home at then in the summertime. No one's going to come home when it's so light and so warm. And he goes, yeah, I didn't understand it. So I go back downstairs and I start working, finishing up what I'm doing. And again, five minutes later, voices and footsteps on the top floor. So he runs upstairs with a hammer in hand and he goes, looks around. He goes, bueno, hello, bueno, Senor Paul. He goes, no response. So he says, all right. He goes to the second floor and takes a quick look around. He goes, nothing there. He goes, that's it. I'm done. I'm getting the hell out of here. So he goes downstairs and he starts packing up his bags. And he says, all of a sudden it happens. I said, what happens? He goes, I start hearing footsteps coming down the staircase. And I said, the staircase? He said, he goes, yeah, the staircase. He goes, you know, we have these two, two, two inch by 14 inch wide planks, you know, solid wood that are on the, the treads making up the stairs. So there's no carpet. He goes, and I hear what sounds like leather soled shoes coming down the, st- the staircase, hitting each one of the treads and getting louder and louder until they got to the bottom of the landing. And he goes, what did, you, what did you do? And he goes, I rushed out into the, into the room and I'm like 10 feet from the bottom where the landing is. And it was all open at the time. It was 11 foot high ceilings. There was no doorway. It was just a eight foot by eight foot stairwell that landed at the bottom of the third level. And he goes, he goes, I look and there's nothing there. I said, what happened? He goes, it happened. I said, what happened? He goes, I felt this ice cold breeze. He goes, it was weird. It wasn't like all over my body because it was isolated to the neck. He goes right below his hairline and right above his back. He goes, it was like a two-inch wide band of ice that went running across the back of his neck. He says, all the hairs in his body stood straight up. He shrugged his shoulders in fear and said, a dos mios, a dos mios, yame boy, yame boy. Translated English means, oh my God, oh my God, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he didn't come back for six weeks. And I said, wait a second. When you took off, you were supposed to do and put the, the tiles in the master bathroom, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, so that's when you told them you were in El Salvador taking care of your sick mom. He goes, yeah. I said, where were you? He goes, I was working other jobs. So a couple years after I'm living there, um, I'm in my bedroom. It's 8 in the morning. And I wake up. And I'm sitting there with my two dogs and my four cats are on the bed with me. And I'm looking up. And I'm thinking, all right, I got the day to this, to this, 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 and this to do today. Let's get up. And as I'm about to get up out of bed, I stop to the, hearing the sound of footsteps. And I'm not talking about pitter-patter. I'm talking about human footsteps going from the stair, from these sliding glass door above me on the balcony across the ceiling, which is the floor on the upper top floor, across going towards the kitchen. And I sat there and I'm looking up at the ceiling and I'm tracking the footsteps as they're going from my right to left. And I'm going one, two, three, four, as they're getting, you know, softer in the distance as they're making their way towards the kitchen. And I'm like, I counted off 10 footsteps. And I said, that would place that person in the middle of the dining room. And I'm like, holy shit. 
and I looked at the alarm. The alarm was on, on in the house. All the doors were set. The infrared sensors were set. So there is no way a physical human being could have walked anywhere on that top floor and not have triggered the, the sliding glass door sensor, the front door sensor, or the infrared sensors. And I sat there and I said, oh, my God. I sat there and I started to chuckle nervously saying, I don't believe it. I've heard the footsteps that were recounted to me by by Julio some four years earlier when the construction was being finished. And I'm thinking, I don't believe it. I said, I'm giddy as all hell. And I said, am I going to get up out of bed to find out what's upstairs? And I said, uh, hell no. Uh, <laughs> I sat there in bed for an hour, just, just not petrified or mortified, just like going, okay, Wrap your fingers around it. Come on, get the strength up, get the balls up, get the get get the courage up, man. You gotta go upstairs and find out what the hell's going on. So finally, after an hour at nine o'clock, I said, I gotta get on with the day. I said, I can't just sit here. And I noticed that the front doors didn't sensor didn't go off. And didn't like somebody walked out the front door, so I'm thinking, all right, if it's a person, he's still there. If it's a ghost, who knows where the hell he is? Yeah. All I know is that physically speaking, that individual or entity did not open and close the front door or the sliding glass doors to leave. So I said, ah, it's enough of this crap. Get upstairs. I go upstairs. I look around the whole house. Everything is fine. The front door is bolt, dead bolted and, the, and, and still locked. I look at the, the doors to the sliding glass uh, to the windows on the balcony. They're locked. And I'm like, all right, that's that's a ghost. That had to be a ghost. But was that the first? That was the first time I heard the footsteps okay. in the house. Now, mind you, this is probably nine, 2004, 2004, 2005 about. And I'm like, wow, that is a trip. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, The key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, honey. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. But will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. And then a few years later in 2008 or 9, I'm in the third level in what is now the theater room. And I'm watching White Chicks with a friend with this date. <laughs> and I remember that we were watching White Chicks because I remember we're in the middle of the movie. And it's right where um, 
what's his face? Um, I'm trying to think of the actor's name. Terry, Marlon Wayne. Terry. Oh, no, Terry, Terry Crews. Terry Crews starts saying, oh, hello, my white chocolate. <laughs> this and that. And right at that moment, I hear a man start talking in the middle of the movie with my blind, with my date. And I said, hold on a second. It sounds like it's coming from the top floor where the answering machine is. So I go into the other room. I said, hold on. I said, I'm going to check the answering machine. So I pick up the phone and it's a dial tone. I go, hello, hello. I'm like, oh, all right. They must have hung up. So I pick up the other telephone that ring that I can, so I can call the extension that has the answering machine on it since the other one has a voicemail set up. So I call the, uh, the answering machine. And I hear ring, ring. And you I heard, go, wait, you I heard, heard someone ring. say that? Or? Well, I, hear, I hear the telephone oh, ring okay. upstairs. I'm going, wait a second. Wait a fucking second. Before I heard the man's voice, did I hear a ring ring like the telephone ring? And I thought to myself, I didn't hear a ring ring. I didn't hear anything. And I'm like, so the machine goes off and I press the machine and it said, no messages. And I'm like, no messages? What the fuck? So I go back into the room from the guest bedroom and I say to my day, I said, I'll be right back. So I go upstairs. I look through the entire house. All the windows are shut. It's March. It's freezing outside and it's windy. So all the windows were closed. I'm thinking, all right, that eliminates the possibility of a telephone message, of a voice message on the machine, of the windows being open and I'm hearing a neighbor com- neighbor's conversation or something. I said, okay. And I thought to myself, let's go to the answering machine. I look at the answering machine, no calls. Look at the caller ID, no calls in the past three hours except for mine. And I'm like, okay, now I definitely have something. So I go downstairs and I say to my date, did you hear the telephone? Can I ask you a question? She goes, yeah. She goes, did you hear the telephone ring before you heard the man's voice? Because she heard it too. Because she heard it. I said, did you? I said, did you hear it? She goes, I heard somebody talking, having a one-way a conversation with somebody. I heard one part of the conversation, but I didn't hear the other. I said, yeah, that's what I heard. And I said, so you didn't hear the ring ring before you heard the man's voice? And she goes, no. And I said, and she goes, why do you ask? And I said, well, I don't want to freak you out, but I went upstairs. I First, I called the machine to see who it was, and there was no message. I went upstairs and looked at the answering machine. No messages. Caller ID, no calls. I didn't hear the ring before I heard the man's voice. I've gone through the house. The windows were all shut. I don't know what the hell is going on. And she goes, do you mean to tell me that we just heard a ghost talking? I said, yeah, I can't really tell you what we heard, but I can tell you it wasn't the television, it wasn't the answer machine. And she goes, It wasn't surround sound it wasn't surround from sound. the movie. No, no, it was coming literally coming down the stairwell because we could hear it coming down through the, the curtains there. And she said, She goes, um, I'm out of here and took oh. off. Never saw her again. Oh, how those ghosts. And I was Maybe like, it was a I, sign. But I thought, I thought, so you know something, if this was the case and this was what the spirits did, there is always a reason. And I have learned through my experiences, just because something doesn't go your way, think of it not in terms of, oh, look what I lost. Oh, oh, I said, think of it this way. Look what you didn't get messed up with. Well, and you know, if a girl's going to be dating you, she's got to deal with the roommates. You bet you, the unseen roommates, you bet your ass. If she can't <laughs> hang with that, you know, then it's like, out of here, chick. Bye. <laughs> you know, which I personally think it's the same thing when people say, 
you know, do you like animals? Like, I love animals. Well, I don't think I can set you up with her because she doesn't. Right. Yeah. She's yeah, allergic to cats. You gotta be okay with at least five ghosts. How many? How many spirits do you think are in the house? Because there's also I've heard things that, that might be on an Indian burial ground. Oh, clear this all up for me. All right. Let's see. Uh, Indian burial ground. This goes back to Lisa Williams from the Lisa Williams Experience, the famous English psychic, who had a television show a few years ago, ten some odd years ago. And after I appeared on the show Ghost Hunters, which I think was the second television show I had been on at the time, and that was 13 years ago in 2006, I do believe, or seven, Lisa Williams saw the episode, and I get an email saying, this is Lisa Williams. I'd love to come and see your house. I saw you on Ghost Hunters, and I'm like, wow, I'm flattered. Somebody that's a paranormal a psychic that's from television that has reputation, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll use the word loosely. Famous is reaching out to me to see my house. And I was like, wow, that's a trip. I felt honored. I feel that if somebody's reaching out to me sincerely and has that approach, I'm not going to say no. And I didn't. And I was like, Lisa, well, sure, please come. I, you're the first person that's reached out to me that's in that field that. I haven't been on a, their television show or this and that, and they want to see. I said, please. I said, however, I want you to come up with no camera crew or anything like that, just you and whoever you want to bring. So she said, fine. She came up to the house, and it was a great experience. I was just blown Why away. Why no camera crew? Well, because a couple months earlier, my neighbor told me that she had seen Lisa at the bottom of the driveway shooting a promo. Oh. With a camera crew, and she heard her saying, "Hi, it's Lisa Williams, and I'm on the infamous private Cielo Drive private, just a few, th- just a just down the driveway from where Sharon Tate was killed, to do a promo for her new TV show that she was putting out there." And I said, "This is private property. This isn't a public street. From the very, very bottom of the entrance to the drive all the way up is private property," and. For her to shoot up there, she would have had to gotten a permission from one of the, the neighbors to grant her the ability to do that. Usually the first person in front of her house would have been required to say, look, if you're going to do this, you have to have me sign off. Otherwise, you're violating our privacy, et cetera, et cetera. And this is trespass issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, look, I'm not going to be used for somebody else's television show without getting some kind of, you know, benefit in my side. Like, are you going to mm-hmm. talk about the house? What are you going to do? Because I'd seen with what the ghost hunters did and what happened with my ghost story. I was like, well, you know, saying you got to be protecting the image of this, of you and the house and how they present it. Got it. Okay. So that's why I said, I said, we, so she agreed and she came to the house and. She took about 10 steps in, got to the top of the dining room, which goes down two steps into the living room, and she turns to her right, which is in the direction of the bar, and she looks and she starts squinting her eyes and she's opening up and going, oh, like she's moving her head around looking like saying, oh, uh, 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 and pointing around going, what? And she goes, oh, do you know there's a big party in your bar? And I'm like, <laughs> and I start to squeeze my, squint my eyes and look really tightly going, I don't see a gosh darn thing. I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is she? And she goes, well, there's Jay, there's Sharon, there's Rudolph Valentino, whose house is, was across the canyon. Valentino's up in there too? Rudolph Valentino's house, Falcon Lair, famously enough, is literally across, well, 
what's left of Falcon Lair is still there, is across the canyon. You look from my balcony, you see straight across, there it is. Wow. He's the, they're the opposite side. If Cielo, if Cielo Drive Private was a public street, it would be called Bella Drive, which is the street across, which is where Valentino's house is. And he's the, you make a right turn off of Cielo to go to Bella, you make a left turn off of Cielo to go to my driveway. So in essence, Valentino's house sits on the exact opposite side of the hill from mine, and it's really the other side of Cielo Drive Private, but they called it Bella. And um, she goes, there's some Native Americans here, and it's a bunch of other people who I don't recognize. And I'm dumbstruck going, huh? And she goes, oh yeah. And she goes, they want me to tell you that they really appreciate you allowing them to stay in your house. <laughs> and I'm like... Did you have a choice? I, I, well, this is what I said. I said, look, I said, I've seen the pictures of Sharon J. Wojcik, Abigail, Stephen in the, it, on the crime scene at the LAPD some six months earlier. So far be it for me to add insult to injury to the murder victims. I said, I don't want to do that. I said, and look, they're, they're, they're not any harm and any nuisance or trouble to me. And I feel the most utmost empathy for their demise of how they died. I said, I'm not going to add insult to injury and put it upon them to be like, get the hell out of here. I said, secondly, I know that I'm not going to live forever. So when I do pass over and I get to the other side, the last thing I want is to be having my ass get kicked around the block for all eternity because this person will say, hey, hey, there's that son of a bitch, David Omen. Yeah. You remember him? He kicked us out of his house, that ungrateful fuck. Uh, yeah, right. and I'm like, oh, there you go. There's, there's his eternity. And I said, Lisa, I said, look, I said, I like making friends. I said with the right people. So if in fact... They are here, and they greet me on the other side. They'll treat me as a friend, not as an adversary, as an enemy. I said, so I'd rather, you know, pad my, my afterlife in a way that I'm not going to be cru crucified for the eternal life. And she laughs. She goes, well, that's – she goes, they're all laughing. And she goes, they all thank, thank you because that's what they appreciate about you, your, your, your approach to things. It's so unique. And it's like <sighs> – I said, that's, I said, well, Lisa, that's who I am. I can't help it. That's just the way I roll. And she goes, well, that's why they want me to tell you that they really, I said, that's good. I, I appreciate them. And I said, there's no, no hardship on my behalf. I said, I'm fine with it. They can stay. Um, fast forward to 2000 and what was this? 14? Yeah. 14. After two years of having ghost adventures shows, the, the ghost adventures show, Come after me, literally. Well, we want to be on you. We want you on our show. And I was like, going, yeah, I, I really don't think so. I've already done my ghost story, paranormal witness, haunted history, ghost hunters, and then two shows in the UK, haunt, uh, dead famous live, and searching for Satan, and one in Japan. I said, I really don't feel like it. I really don't. First of all, I didn't really appreciate their. Um, their modus operandi, which in, from Latin means their ways of operating. Mm. I didn't like the fact that they were, for lack of better words, bullying and kowtowing the spirits around and, and trying to antagonize them. I just said, you know, I really don't find that that appealing. I think it's kind of disingenuous. It's dramatic. It's fraught with sensationalism. And it's everything I don't like. So finally, we made a deal and they came out to the, do the show. 
So during this time, they were gonna, they said, we're going to be here for four days. I said, four days. Oh, my God. He goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's not all happening in one day. And it's not like we're going to be doing every, you know, the investigation in four days. I said, oh. He goes, this is the schedule. First day, we're going to do interviews with you walking around the house. Second day, we do interviews with other people that have been here and their experiences. Third day, we do interview. We do the reenactment of the um, different stories that we've come up with, and then and we will also do B-roll. I said, and what's the fir- the fir- the last day? He goes, oh, the last day is the lockdown. Oh, okay. So he goes, we'll be here five hours, you know, the first day, six hours the second day. Then we'll do some evening shots and some afternoon shots on the third day. On the fourth day, we're going to be here from eight and eight, seven in the evening to like four or five in the morning. Okay. So on the fourth day, Zach rolls up. And I said to Zach, I said, look, you guys are here. You're from Vegas. I said, how'd you guys like to come by tomorrow night when you're off work? And we'll barbecue and we'll all hang out and we'll talk and we'll shoot the shit and we'll talk about the stories of the house. Not on camera. And I had figured it was in the line, in the lineage or the, in the ways that Lisa Williams had be- behaved, professional and very interested and intrigued. And it was really something sincerely, something she was really in- interested in. With Zach, it was like, oh, man, I can't because I got a chick flying in. Mm. And I'm like, the what? You live in Vegas, man. You can catch. I, I I can't understand how it is you wouldn't take your your prize trophies in own in your own city where it's you 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 got everything at your disposal and it's easy to get people in and out of Vegas. But she's flying into LA to meet you while you're here in LA. And I shook my head and I go okay. And at that moment, I thought to myself, fuck, nah, 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 nah. And I kept hearing from the spirit saying, God, you got to be kidding me. This guy is just. Fraud. They didn't like him. It, it's, they, they, they thought, they was like, you know, saying you, you sincerely approached him and said, look, outside of this, what you're doing for the show, wouldn't you really appreciate the chance to shoot this shit and to talk to me off camera and to get the feel of the house? And uh-uh. He's, he's so devoid of the interest levels that a real professional parapsychologist or an interest, a ghost investigator would really take the opportunity of saying, yeah, get to spend some time here without the cameras and to talking to you about the paranormal and seeing it for myself. This would be a cool opportunity. Let's do it. No. So I didn't bother asking Nick and Aaron because I figured this is the, this is the way, the status quo for the whole group. And we went and they shot the show and they started at 9 o'clock. They were going to go from 9 o'clock to 6 to 3 in the morning on the lockdown. So at 9 o'clock, I go to the top of the stairs right before they're going to ask me out of the house. And I go to the top of the stairs and I said, spirits. I said, listen, I know you're freaking pissed. I said, I know what happened the night before and how you feel about these people. And what I'm referring to is, is the night before during the um, B-roll and the uh, reenactment footage. They were doing a reenactment of a story that this girl had said she had experienced at the house a few months earlier, which I don't personally believe took place ever. But they went with it as the reenactment. And that was this girl was had driven up the driveway with her mom and saw a pregnant, bloodied Sharon Tate dressed in a white nightgown covered in blood, caressing and clutching her pregnancy in pain. And I said, no, that's not real. And they, oh, we're doing it anyways. We're gonna, I said, well, that's fine. You do it at your own peril. And the night that the night before the lockdown, they're shooting it. 
and I'm outside taking pictures from the side of the house. And one of the pictures, there's an image of this ball of white, brilliant light pouring out of the girl's stomach. And I'm thinking, wait a second, what in the hell is that? I said, the camera's in front, the lights are in front to illuminate her front-wise. There are no lights behind her. So how has it got this big ball of light pouring out of her or something reflecting off of this white flannel or white, it wasn't flannel, it's a white silky nightgown. And I was like, and I looked through all the other pictures, the other 40 pictures, that was the only one that had this. Mm. And I started to feel sick. And all of a sudden I got chills and I said, I heard the spirit saying, this is the ultimate, uh, ultimate point of disrespect towards her memory. Wow. And then I felt like, like just, I felt this animosity rolling all around me, just like this anger whirling around me going, we're going to get him. And I was hearing voices saying, he's doomed. He's dead. He's, he's, he's done. He's done. He's, that's it. This is just, no, we will not tolerate this. This is the ultimate disrespect for the memory of Sharon Tate. And I'm like, holy, what the hell is this? And I just felt like, ooh, ew, ah, ooh. So the next night at 9 o'clock, I go to the top of the stairs and I basically call the spirits. I said, I know you're pissed off. I said, but I don't want you to effing touch these people. I know you want to kill them. I know you want to throttle them. I know you want to just totally take it out on them. Please don't eff with them. Please I said, this is my house. This is on my head. They're not going to blame you. They're going to blame me. And I don't want this, and I don't want you guys to take it on them. I don't want this to be the case. The executive producer or the producer from the show comes up to me as I'm walking out the house and goes, what the hell was that? I said, look, I said, I have been feeling absolutely terrified at what you guys are about to embark upon. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, I said, when you guys were doing the shoot last night for the reenactment of the pregnant, bloodied up Sharon Tate in the nightgown walking around doing that B-roll, I took some pictures and I got a picture of this. And he goes, yeah. He goes, I said, not to mention, I said, I kept on feeling the whole time after that that you guys were in dire, dire straits. I said, you guys were really messing with people you shouldn't have. And he goes, he, 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 that went over his head. He goes, will you go back to the top of the stairs and do it again, though? I, he said, it's good clean, TV. He goes, he said that. He goes, this is good TV. He goes, I want that. He goes, would you, but you have to do it in a clean, in a G-rated version. He goes, I can't have those curse words in there. And I looked at him and said, you didn't listen to anything I said. Yeah. It just, I looked at him like one, that, that, everything I just said went right over your head, huh? That just didn't make sense to you, did it? Okay, fine. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Because I'm thinking, as an as a as being part of their show, and I've learned this through the years of doing shows. Sometimes you have to do things. You have to modify your descriptions so that it's a little more dramatic. Mm -hmm. So again, for the show's sake, they want a little bit more pump pop. So I went to the top of the stairs and I did the reenactment, and I was very very coy about it and very very genteel and very. Um, cleaned up the, the, the rhetoric I put out there. But I still meant it at, at heart. Well, they started at 9 o'clock. Well, all the equipment failed right after they walked in the house. Everything. All the batteries died. <laughs> all the backup batteries were dead. And they said, we have a problem. He goes, what? He goes, all the equipment's failed. And I'm going, what? He goes, all the equipment's failed. We have, to, we, have to, we, we have to scramble. I said, what do you mean? He goes, we have to figure out what's going on here. So for the next hour, from 9 to 10, they were in front of the house all desperately trying to figure out where the failures of the equipment was, why the backup batteries were dead, and they were all fully charged two minutes before they started. So they went and they redid all their stuff. They started at 10 o'clock. Um, I'm outside the house, and you know, because I'm not in the god 
car. I'm not sitting in my little RAV4 waiting to just sit there and freeze my ass off with my dogs and my cats. So I kept on moseying around and I go up to, to Jay who's in the garage with the uh, sound equipment and he says, he goes, guys, guys, I just heard something. So he puts, everybody else gets the mic, gets to hear the headphones and they put the headphones on me and I'm listening and I hear something and I said, I hear, what's this? And he goes, Where's the, where is this mic? He goes, it's at the bottom of the stairwell. Okay. I said, what's, he goes, listen to this. And he plays it. And I hear this thing go, woof, woof. And I go, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. I said, oh, what the hell are you doing? I said, who's the comedian who's downstairs at the bottom of the stairwell making dog, imitating a dog barking? And he goes, and Jay looks at me and goes, David, he goes, there's no one in the house. I said, when did you just get? He goes, he goes, right when you heard me go, guys, guys, because that's when I heard it. I said, you're kidding. He goes, uh-uh, literally two minutes ago. And he goes, and Jay goes, he goes, look, look here. He goes, you don't believe me that everybody's outside the house? He goes, take a look. And I looked, and there's Nick, Zach, Aaron, Jay was there, and a couple of other people in the crew. And I said, there's no one. He goes, uh-uh. I said, whoa. I said, I got a goddamn ghost with a freaking sense of humor. <laughs> and he goes, I like your ghost. <laughs> and he says to me, he goes, that's me. I was like, I said, I believe you. I just find it amusing that the spirits have got a sense of humor. So they go on and go back in. And then, of course, Nick comes up and he's got the burn. It's probably about 1130 now. And he's got a burn on himself. And he's like, oh, no, this isn't good. I don't know what the hell. And I'm like, oh, that's never happened here in the times I've lived here in the past five years. Or the past, what was it, 14, 12 years. And I'm like, wow, that's that's sensational. Fuck. So they send him back down, and then the whole shit with him starts happening. And I'm hearing, I'm listening to, I'm watching Zach and Aaron in the back with Jay in the back of this van watching the monitor. And I can hear what's going on because it's vocal. It's the, uh, the speakers, excuse me, are playing the uh, audio. And I hear Nick having problems. And he is, ter- I hear in the voice, in his voice, that he's got this tone of terror, of absolute, ab- absolute abstract panic. And I sit there and I look at the, I look at Zach and I look at Aaron and they're cracking the fuck up. They're just laughing. <laughs> and Zach's like, oh. and I said, and I keep on looking back at the monitor they're looking at. And I look at them and I go back and forth. and I go, you know, this isn't going to hold water in my house. I said, who the hell do you think you are? You do not get to take advantage of a person who's in my house that's with you guys and torture him, whether or not it's actually occurring and it's, or if it's actually only happening in his mind, that doesn't matter. That you guys are letting him hang down there and sink into the abyss in his own mind of going through the experience of being terrified and traumatized. I, I just said, that's it. I said, I said, if you sons, if you don't go the fuck down there right now and get him. I said, I don't give a flying fuck about the goddamn contract. I am going down there and I'm going to save him and rescue him because it's not important what you guys think is going on and that you can't see anything and you can't hear anything and that you don't think there's anything actually happening. You think he's just freaking himself out is beside the point. The point is you don't leave somebody in a situation where they are uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and they're feeling threatened and fearful for their life. It's good TV. Yeah, that's what they probably here's my, told here's my middle me. finger yeah. to Zach Baggins and good TV. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I said, and then Zach said, all right, he's serious. It was like, you think I'm, I was like, I, I was offended, thinking to myself, you think I'm kidding? 
I said, I don't do that. I don't fuck with people like that. So he's like, all right, guys, come on, let's. All right, he goes, all right, and he's finally like, let's route, let's let's rally the troops and go down there. And literally, it's another minute going by, and what you see on the episode doesn't show you the totality of how long he was there. If there was a time clock for how long he was in that situation, it was at least five minutes. Because from watching the episode, I really gather that there's a malevolent, a malevolent force. There's an evil of some sort or something, you know. But from your experience, that's not the case at all. It's just they were not into what was going on. They uh, didn't like the guests in the house. They uh, didn't like their mission. I, yeah, I will basically say this. I don't believe in such things as demons, devils, malevolent spirits. I think that it's... I take it and I put things in these terms. When a human being is alive, what they are is a person. They have their high, their good moments and their bad moments. Some people have more bad moments than good moments, such as people like Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and other people that were despots and such. And I'm just using those as an example. I'm not saying that they're all like that, but like Jeffrey Dahmer and people like that. There's a malevolency that's that we consider. We don't call it. We, we sometimes term it in so many ways as saying they're evil. That's a, what when when you're talking about a malevolent spirit. That's what it is. It's the castoffs. Uh, energy or the personality of a person that was a real piece of work when they were alive. Mm-hmm. There's still a piece of work when they're dead. There's not, I don't personally believe in hell or Hades. Well, I can't say Hades. I believe in Hades in the sense of what the Greeks were talking about and crossing over the river Styx, which was, in a, was basically the transition between living and the deceased. I don't feel that there's so many malevolent things like there's a malevolent overseeing force in the universe that's there to to, to, to basically give people an out that are bad people for a place for them to go. But what I've seen is, is that it's just like with a human being, when you piss somebody off... You're going to get hit upside the head. Yeah. And I don't mean figure. I mean figuratively. I don't mean physically. But I mean, if you insult somebody, expect to get an insult back for them. Well, that's what it's very interesting to hear about the spirits in your house because they, they have a sense of humor. They have feelings. You know, they look out for the way that they're being presented. I love that. So who are you at this point able to say that was Jay? That was Sharon? Um, well, I don't want to just focus on them because back to your original question, how oh, yeah, many how spirits many? in the house? According to Lisa Williams, the house is like a gigantic fl- ghost flop house. <laughs> Marianne Winkowski also said it's like your house is like at a revolving door. Marianne Winkowski is the woman that the real life Ghost Whisperer TV show was based upon uh, yes, with Jennifer okay. Love Hewitt. And I've spoken to her many times. And she said, your house has got a revolving door, sweetheart. Spirits just come in, they hang out for however long they like, and they float on out. Really? So and, sometimes you get new company. Oh, all the time. Oh, wow. Um, we have, there's a photograph I've got during an investigation a few years back where it's all the people, there's, it's half lit, but you can see people's silhouettes. And in this, in this photograph, there's a silhouette of a man wearing a 10-gallon hat, like wow. a Texas-style 10-gallon hat. And I looked at the picture and I said, okay, I said to my friend Steve, I said, Steve, who's wearing the hat in the scene? He goes, David, no one. I said, no one. He goes, no one was wearing a baseball cap, let alone a 10-gallon hat. And that is clearly the outline of a 10-gallon hat. And a man's wearing it. And I'm like, 
So who are the mainstays? Who who is has been there since the beginning? Um, well, it's hard to say since the beginning, but who's there on a regular basis? I do believe Sharon's visits there quite often. Have you seen Sharon? I've only seen the apparition of Jay Sebring 14 years ago in the middle of the night. Wow. Um, and that was a full-body apparition. He looked great. He didn't look like he was in the clothes he was wearing when he was killed. He didn't look like the aftermath of the murders. He was his body was completely wound free. He had um, he was wearing a double breasted suit um, with short lapels, and at the time I didn't recognize him as him. But later on, I discovered through doing some research, I found a photograph of Jay with his natural hairstyle, and that's who the heck I saw was Jay Sebring. Um, <laughs> Is that the only apparition you had seen the, this whole time? That's the only apparition that I've seen. And what I mean by apparition, I've seen. You know, people call them shadow people, and they're, oh, they're dark energies. Like, no, I just believe that a shadow person is a spirit that is transiting, transitioning from an apparition back to its its normal type of a um, amorphic fog, so to speak. And at the moment, when I saw these objects or images out of the corner of my eye, I'd see it in a fleeting moment of somebody walking by, and it was just like a, like a blacked-out uh, silhouette of a person zooming by. Um, I've never seen the apparition of Sharon. I know that other people have at the house have recounted the experience of seeing a blonde-haired woman in a in a nightgown walking around. I'm like, they refer to, oh, I just saw your girlfriend. It's like, I just spoke with my girlfriend a couple of months ago. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Blonde hair said, no, my girlfriend was a pre-night. Well, I just saw this blonde-haired girl walk right by towards from the living room in towards the stairwell, and then she just vanished. And I thought it was your girlfriend. They just ran down the stairs. And it's like, uh-uh. Um, Jay's, like I said, he's been there. The Native Americans are quite prominently there. Um, and that would be the Tongva tribe. We've done research. They were actually in that area up until about 165 years ago. And about a mile away from my house on Cielo Drive and Chevy Chase is a rock, a granite stone, a big boulder there, and on it there's a bronze placard which says, in 1925, when ground was first broken for the Beverly Hills First Women's Club, the remains of three Native Americans were uncovered from a battle between the early Californians and the Native Americans. So that also played into the story of, oh, my God, there are Native Americans here. Uh-huh. And it, I found out the tribe was called the Tongva tribe. They had been here for 10,000 years wow. till about 160 years ago when they were forcibly removed. Um, now, have your neighbors had any experiences? Um, the neighbors directly next to me and around me, I don't really talk to them much about it. I've been approached by other neighbors in the area that have told me of their strange experiences with the paranormal. And one case was these people have bought this house. They were remodeling it. It was bought in a probate. Shortly after the remodeling, they had problems with somebody walking up and down the hall and opening and closing the doors to the cab to the, the cabins to the linen closets and stomping their feet up and down. And they called up the previous owner's son and they said, you know, we're having some and before they could say two words, they said, <laughs> Problems in the house are you now? Well that's our dad. He's very unhappy you're remodeling his castle, his domain. And they were like, What? He died two years earlier and they went to find out that he had died a few years earlier in a convalescent home. And when it finally was sold and they bought it and they started remodeling his spirit was still very much attached to his home, which he had lived in for thirty years. So he was 
unduly upset about the fact that they were remodeling his his palace hmm. and other things. So outside of that, I think that there's a lot of things that happen in people's homes that people immediately dismiss. Yeah. It's easy just to say, oh, that happened. Oh, that's just that's something, you know, to, to, to wish it away to something else or to say, oh, it's attributed to this. Or that. I have had experiences in the house where a couple of years ago there was a large – I was going outside to take the, do- the two dogs out and I was three steps from the front door and I heard this incredible explosion, like glass smashing and shattering. I was like, what the – I run in the house. I go look through the entire house. There is nothing. I'm looking at, at, at paintings with glass frames. Nothing. And I watched the footage from the closed-circuit television cameras, and the sound acoustically was from the top floor, yet it could be heard through the entire three floors of the house. And I'm like – and I put this video up on YouTube. You can watch it. And I'm like, that is so strange. It's pr- it's it's really pr- prominent. It's a loud crash of glass. About six, seven months later, I was going into the – I was in the kitchen and I was looking to get a bowl out of the lower cabinet in the corner of the kitchen. And I opened the, the, door, the door and I started pulling the Lazy Susan, which is basically a platform on a swivel so you can roll it out. And I started pulling it and it stopped. I'm like, what the hell? I got a flash. I looked in and against the back corner – on the floor uh, outside the Lazy Susan's area, there's four, three Pyrex large eight to ten inch bowls that were stacked one inside the other that were on the thing shattered. And I'm like, oh That's my God. Was. I said, I found the source to the gosh darn shattering the glass. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. And I realized it was on top of the Lazy Susan. And it's the that's the second platform. This top flat platform sits about 12, 14 inches above the, 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 land, the floor of the uh, space. So somehow they got lifted up an inch over the lip that is around the edge of the Lazy Susan, I guess, the, the platform, and lifted up and moved over 10 inches and dropped straight down. They wow. weren't. I, I know because when I put the gosh darn plates in there, I put the uh, the casseroles in there and the bowls, I put them on top inside the Lazy Susan. I didn't put them outside. Furthermore, I didn't at the time when I had left the house, I wasn't in the kitchen doing anything beforehand to even get that movement yeah. going. So literally they took about six pounds worth of glass casserole plates and dropped them. So I mean, with something like that, do you do you know who would have done that or why I, they would have done that? I, when I came to ask, I said, "All right, what's going on? What happened?" What, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, something got damaged and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, "All right, what's what's the joke? What happened? Was that just an acoustic faux pas that wasn't real?" But when I found it six months later, I was like, "Well, now I got to buy some more casseroles." And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, "Son of a guy!" It's in their Pyrex. That's not. And I was like, "Oh God!" And I didn't realize that there was that it had happened. That that it really had happened at the time that it really did not much damage until I found it, it was like, well, wow, that's that's a lot of damage. That's that's and it's not like it was feathers. It was substantial weight that was literally moved over and then dropped. Dang. So back to the story with Mr. Baggins. 
So back then, after they had gone through the house, they go down to the um, and pick Nick up, and they bring him back stairs. And Nick's like, oh, "I'm not happy. I'm having a tough. That's just too much." And I'm like, "Wow, you guys are real assholes." <laughs> I said to Zach, "I said you're a piece of work. I'm not really happy about you." Later on, we watch the show, and it airs like seven months later, and. Lo and behold, he's talking about the house and the Native American. And I'm like, okay. And all of a sudden, out of his mouth comes these words of, his, you know, his house is built on ceremonial Native American burial ground. And I'm like, my friend says, you didn't tell us that because I had a viewing party to watch the show. And I'm like, that's because I didn't ever say that. Why would I? Who the? What the? I started laughing and I thought to myself, what a jackass. He says he's saying something, totally misquoting me. And it kept on going. And I said, Oh, shoot. I started to realize people are going to take this as the gospel, the word of God. Yeah. And they're going to derive a certain type of a theory about my house. And I'm going, what about the Native Americans? What about the Tongva tribe? What if the Tongva tribe takes this seriously and they want to get a gosh darn excavation in, 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 in the land mm-hmm. on that property and see if they can find some remains? Of it? And if it is... You know what ends up happening? The property can be removed by eminent domain as a nat- as a Native American cultural site. Wow. So that could actually affect a lot. Uh, yeah. And I <laughs> thought to myself, well, I said, first of all, I don't believe the story that he's saying. It's not a ceremonial Native American burial ground. Secondly, what Lisa Williams had said was that he was riding his horse. We went down there. <laughs> Sorry, I'm backtracking to Lisa Williams. But Lisa goes down into that room and she goes, oh, do you know that you have a Native American who's was on horseback and his remains are interred in the mound of the earth here, which is the earthen wall room? And I'm like... I didn't know that. And at the time, I didn't know anything about the Native Americans. So when I did the research and I found the Beverly Hills First Woman's Club in the boulder, and the, the, I said, oh, my God, she's right. Doing further research, the Native Americans were in the area. And she said that he was riding his horse on what is now the driveway, which was a horse path leading to the end of the driveway, which the end of the street was, she said, a plateau that looked down upon the canyon and you could have access to seeing if your enemies were coming up. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And she goes, yeah, he was walking his horse down there and the horse reared up, fell, took a step and fell down the slope of the hill with him and both the horse and the rider's bodies were were basically mangled and broken bones and broke their necks as they tumbled down the hillside some 60 feet and finally come to rest against the tree, a tree that was there. And I'm like, okay. All right. So I didn't tell anybody about this, the Native American because I figured, you know, saying this is interesting. I have an opportunity that I have perhaps some information about the house that nobody knows about. It's not public. So anytime a psychic comes in the house, let's see what they pick up. Sure. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm, not going to tell them anything. James von Prague, Chris Fleming. I forgot who else. Other different psychics had come through there. And they all said, that I feel the presence of a Native American on horseback in this, in, this earth, in this mound of earth. And I'm like, whoa, that's a trip. <laughs> yeah. Finally, after all the years and all the radio shows and I had told different radio shows, I said, okay, I think, you know, Zach's coming. I can tell him the story. So I told him what I told you. He turns around and makes it into on the episode, David's house is built on Native cer- ceremonial Native American burial grounds. And I'm like, the hell it is. No, it's not. And said 
statement has taken off like wildfire where people believe that the house is built on a frickin' graveyard. At which point I say the Native Americans weren't here in, in this area, had plenty of land in the canyons where it was flat, where they could build a, a regular ceremonial burial ground. They wouldn't have gone out of their way to find an obscure hillside yeah, to then drop seem... down 60 feet to dig a hole. Oh, we're going to go visit the, 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 the relatives for a ceremony. What do you mean? We're going to do a war dance, <laughs> a, a ceremonial dance on a slope of the... No. Yeah. So, so uh, what about the whole thing about the geomagnetic... Barry Anomaly. Taff, right. What you're talking about is what Barry Taff had said 14 years ago in 2005 when he first came to the house and did research. He said the house is built on, on a, a, um, a geomagnetic anomaly. And according to Barry Taff, not me, he said that there's, a, there's research that shows on the U.S. Geological Survey that there's a pre – there's a condition that he believes is pre-volcanic, not pre-seismic – meaning it's not an earthquake fault line, but he says that there's probably a large lava tube under the earth there, and as the lava is moving in this lava flume or lake, that is discharging an electromagnetic field up through the earth. And the way that the architect, correction, the structural engineer incorporated my father's designing of the house, he said, I want you to put in two steel I-beams to support this third floor and two steel I-beams to support the second floor. And I want them to be embedded in, in connected to steel columns that are embedded in the concrete, the rebar, I mean the concrete um, gray beams, to reinforce the stability so that this house can really withstand any earthquakes. So he put that in there. My dad came up with a 30-foot spiral wrought iron staircase to go down the center right adjacent to where those two, those four steel I-beams sit. As a result, what Barry surmised was that because the electromagnetic fields that are existing in the earth, they're being transferred through the steel rebar through the 13 caissons that are connected to the gray beams that create this foundation that are then connected to these three these six steel columns and these four steel I-beams, and they're becoming magnetized. He says the house has got an ambient level of around 2,000 milligauss positive to 2,000 milligauss negative DC electromagnetic field levels. I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, I'll give you an idea. Normal is anywhere between three and 500 milligauss positive. Yours is Four times positive and 12 times reverse polarity negative. He goes, you have a, basically a gigantic um, bipole. I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, in theory, when spirits manifest, they register an elevated level of EMF discharge around 2,000 milligauss. And he, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, when I worked on the original Entity case, the movie, yeah, the Barbara Hershey City. movie in Culver City, he goes, when we took this famous image with the Polaroid, which is this woman there, and there's this large arc of white light energy over her. He goes, and when we shot that picture, our meters registered 2,000 milligauss. He goes, in your house, after 12 or 14 visits here, I have measured the, the levels always to be high a minimum of this height because they could be far exceeding that but our wow, measurements that's just the normal our meters only register to here I said really he goes yeah and he goes and my theory is, is this he goes when people come into the house the spirits that are around them hit this environment they can party and do what they want I said what do you mean <laughs> he goes they can derive their energy off of the existing energy in the house I'm like wow 
I could talk to you for hours, yeah. though. You've got some good stuff Have to talk about. I'm, I'm happy, happy that you cleared shit. up a lot of things as well. Now, where can people find out about you? You've got your YouTube channel. YouTube.com forward slash David Oman, O-M-A-N. And you also do some events at your place sometimes, I do right? some events. I, I the 50th have... is coming up of the Manson. Are you guys going to do anything that's, that? that's hard to say. I'm trying to actually see about doing a documentary on my house to straighten out the whole story of my experiences and um, get it out there to theaters. Um, this year is going to be interesting since it's the 50th anniversary. I have a feeling that a lot of the television networks are going to be calling me up to say, can we do a live remote from your house for the anniversary? It's like, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to be pretty busy this year, I have a feeling. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do it really to pay homage to Sharon, Jay, Wojciech, Abigail, Stephen, and Sharon's unborn son, Paul. Um, I don't do this to make money. I, yes, I charge because the people who I have with me get paid, the son, psychic that's there, the medium that's there, the people that help, the paranormal investigators, the food. It, it, when I do it, it's really to open it up to let the public see and experience a real-life haunted house minus all the dramatic aforementioned crap that people will embellish and create and to experience it for themselves. That's because when I was a kid, I always wanted to see mm-hmm. and experience a real-life haunted house. That's cool. And that's my I, motivation. I can't wait to stop by. Oh, yeah. You bet your sweet bippy you will. <laughs> so, obviously... We had to go check this place out. Now, I was terrified. I'm not going to lie. I was stressed about it the entire day because from what I had seen on television, it seemed like some dark-sided stuff. And you know I don't mess with the dark-sided stuff. But he assured me, and I really, truly believed him, that there is not anything evil in the house, that these are spirits of people and they mean no harm. I mean, the guy would know of anyone. He lives there. He deals with this every day. So I made my way back to Cielo Drive and it's, it is way up there in the hills. We're talking windy roads. It's so easy to miss. And you know, you, you go up the street and it's just, oh, oh no, it's about to happen. I, I'm, I'm just uh, terrified. And Lan was pretty cool. Lan, Lan was like, we're just going to see what happens. You know, don't worry. It's going to be fine. So we go in. There's a couple of people in there. Immediately, as soon as I walk in, I'm like, whoo, okay, there is some energy here, honey. Now, I didn't I didn't know how many people were there. So he does these fun little events where you pay an entrance fee. It's not too outrageous. The money goes to the psychic. He also uh, makes you food. This guy, David, he's a great host. I mean, he was he he knew what he was doing. He, he, he was checking in on us. He was like, you want some cheese? Here's some cheese. Do you want some water? Here's some water. He was great. Made us feel right at home, which is not easy to do. So. You know, you you can go to one of these events as well. But we uh, we just so happened to be invited to one of these events. And we didn't realize that there was a bunch of paranormal investigators there, which was actually really great for us because the two of us are not ghost hunters whatsoever. So we kind of got to look in on other people's um, equipment and, 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 you know, they'd say, oh, I just caught something over here. And then we'd go run over there and then they'd say, oh, I just left or whatever. So it was fun. Um, so... It's a really interesting house. It's three floors and there's a, a, a windy spiral staircase. And Land and I, 
you know, we decided, okay, we're going to, we're going to go on an adventure. We're going to walk around. We're going to see, see what happens. We go to the second floor and as soon as I get to the second floor, I'm starting to have a hard time breathing. It feels like something is sitting on my chest. I I just, I, I couldn't breathe. And Right when I was about to say something, Land was like, ooh, I cannot breathe. It is The air is thick in here. And I was like, yeah, this is crazy. And I noticed that there was this key that was on a key ring with another key. So there was, there was a key in the door, and then there was one kind of dangling from the key ring, just kind of just, just dangling. And I looked at it because it was the only thing in the room, this hallway of the of the second floor that it was the only thing in the room that was kind of moving and I looked I said land look at that key and it was just sort of vibrating it was just sort of shaking just a little bit and it was kind of it was kind of odd like why would that be moving like that but either way we were both like okay let's take note of that I can't breathe so we go to the next floor so land and I go down to the bottom floor it's pitch black I'm terrified I just don't want anything to touch me and we're like, okay, I, I told Land, I'm not ready for this yet. This is just, we just walked in. I'm not going to the pitch black. And you could see that there were people, like actual human beings, I can only assume were human beings, ghost hunting down there. And I was like, we're going back upstairs. So we go back upstairs. David is, you know, cheerful as ever. He's barbecuing. And he's like, so what happened? And we're just like, oh, man, I don't know. We just, you know, I got a little scared. And then this other paranormal investigator guy was like, oh, there was this, spirit that uh was on the second floor just it went through the hallway and we're like yeah oh well we were just there we experienced it so a little bit of time goes by talked to a couple other investigators a lot of people that had been there before they had all kinds of stories of different activity and and they sort of seemed to know uh different regulars in terms of spirits you know they'd say oh yeah there's a dog ghost that lives here and there's um you know there's you know they were describing all kinds of people sharon sometimes here jay sebring and i'm like okay land i'm ready let's do it so we go back down to the second floor and all of a sudden we could breathe both of us could breathe. We both were like, this is crazy. The air is completely clear. And the key was not moving anymore. Coincidence? I don't know. So then we go down to the bottom floor where it's pitch black. All the ghost hunters are. And they've got their spirit boxes. Um, they've got all their devices trying to catch things. Uh, and we meet this wonderful human named Tammy. And she has a podcast that you should check out called Holly Weird Paranormal. And she's a regular. She, she had been there a couple of times. And she she was sort of leading us in uh, an exercise where we would have she would she would have everyone kind of focus and she would try to see who was who was present. And she would say things like, if you're a man, knock. And then all of a sudden we'd all go, did you hear that? Because literally a knock. So she had us, you know, put our palms down if we were closed off to any kind of um, experience and then uh, palms up if you were open to some kind of communication. (sighs) I actually, I put my palms down. I'm not gonna lie. It was dark. No one could see. But I was just like, I'm not, I'm like, I was like, I was still, 
I, listen, anytime I go to a house that's pitch black with a bunch of strangers in the Hollywood Hills, I'm already like kind of on guard. Now, that's that's talking about humans in this form. So when, we're, when we've got spirits everywhere, I was like, it took me a minute to get comfortable. So we, uh, you know, we stayed around for a little bit of that. And there was definitely, definitely some knocks. I mean, we all heard it. And it was a wall that was not attached to another wall. Like it was like someone, it was a knock. Now, unfortunately, Land and I both had plans that night, and so we could only stay for maybe about two hours or so, but you better believe that we are coming back. Now, if you want to come to one of these events, go to theomenhouse.com. That is O-M-A-N. See, what did I tell you? That guy is a real character. And I hope that if you ever come to Los Angeles, you can uh, get an ex- get to experience the world-famous David Omen House. You might also be able to experience me live. If you're in Los Angeles, April 13th, I'm at the world-famous Hollywood Improv for my stand-up comedy game show with my best friend and former podcast guest, Sam Pancake. It is such a fun time. That show's at 9 p.m. I'll have a ticket link in my Instagram bio. My Instagram, of course, you probably already follow me, but if you don't, it is at Roz Dresfales. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Please... Tell your friends about this show so we can continue to grow. Like us, subscribe to us, of course, on Apple Podcasts and Himalaya and wherever you listen to podcasts. And please give us five stars. If you have a real ghost story that you would like for me to read on the air, you can put it in the review that you leave us, a five-star review, of course, on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you happen to have an EVP or you don't have access to Apple Podcasts, please send that stuff on over to ghostedbyraws at gmail.com. I love you guys so much. As always, both living people and not living people, I love you, but if I didn't ask you to haunt me, don't haunt me. Okay, bye! Star Bands Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.